Hello, and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan Lee Davies, and here is my co-host, Gavia Baker-Whitelaw. Hello! So this week, we're discussing Ridley Scott's new film, The Last Duel, starring Matt Damon as Jean de Carouge, a medieval Frenchman who challenges his friend Jacques Legree, played by Adam Driver, to a duel after his wife Marguerite, played by Jodie Comer, accuses Legree of raping her. The film also stars Ben Affleck as the local count, Pierre d'Alençon. So um, this is based on a true story. It is based on a book uh, written by Eric Jaeger that came out in 2004. We'll talk a little bit more about that when we get into the episode in full. We were planning on talking about the miniseries The North Water this week, which we will still be getting to in a couple of weeks. But we both saw this movie and were surprised and delighted to discover that we thought it was pretty good, <laughs> which based on uh, the trailer and especially the promotional stills that were going around earlier in the year, we certainly were not expecting. I- also, the concept on paper is that yes. this is a rape movie whose creative team is not only male dominated, which is like, of course, not necessarily a bad thing, but... um. Damon and Affleck nominated because obviously they co-wrote the screenplay with Nicole Holofner. So, um, mm. <laughs> but it turned out pretty well. It's a really interesting film uh, to watch and discuss because it's like partly this huge kind of classic Ridley Scott, very expensive, sprawling epic with lots of big stars and very conventional. But also it's like an adult movie about rape and consent. So kind of a bit of a rare beast in today's film market. Yeah, absolutely. Which unfortunately is also reflected in the fact that this movie, which cost $100 million to make, made $5 million this weekend. So it's flop central. Yep. They didn't advertise this film. Uh, (laughs) It's not been marketed as such, despite the fact that it's starring, like, I mean, basically Ben Affleck goes out the door and gets free publicity from every paparazzi person in, like, California. So... (laughs) And Adam Driver is like basically the biggest serious movie yeah. star in the world right now. I think and they yet. really, yeah, they really botched the marketing. I think that they were freaked out by the subject matter, and I'm sure the subject matter also turned off some viewers, which is perfectly fair. But I didn't love this movie. I had some problems with it, which we will discuss. But I found it really interesting. I found parts of it really enjoyable, and I was. Just like it is so refreshing to see a big Hollywood movie that's actually like about adults and like ideas where stuff happens as opposed to just a superhero movie. Um, so I'm kind of bummed that it has flopped so badly and we would definitely recommend checking it out and we will discuss more about that. Yeah, it feels weird to say, but it's like it's not difficult viewing. No. Which like most movies obviously that are about rape are like hard and unpleasant to watch and this is kind of not in that zone yeah i mean they show the rape scene twice so obviously if you're someone who just like doesn't want to see that you should not go see this movie and obviously it's not like pleasant to watch for anybody but i didn't find the movie in general upsetting to watch even though there are upsetting things in it and i think even when everyone on the internet was like, what the fuck is this film? I was always kind of like, I'm going to keep an open mind because Nicole Hall Center is writing on it and she is such a brilliant screenwriter and director, though obviously she didn't direct this movie. And I think she definitely helps <laughs> them with this film. Though I also think the things about it that work the most do have to do with some of the male characters. 
Ben Affleck's oh, character. Yeah, in I mean for sure. I definitely thought that like the I mean we'll discuss the structure in a minute, but like the kind of the the male characters basically were kind of more interesting and better for the most part for reasons that are kind of baked into the concept and are not necessarily as bad an element as you would kind of think from that description. Yeah. So again, this was directed by Ridley Scott, who is like in his 80s and has two movies coming out this fall. I Madness. The man is efficient. He will put together a huge movie. I mean, the fact that he's got two movies coming out this year is completely unbelievable. But like, he just he just churns them out and they're not all winners, but like they're not terrible either. And this is like a straight down the line, like classic historical epic with lots of scale and many horses. And that's um that's hard work. Like I yeah, I don't really know how he does it. <laughs> I feel like I've heard and this is not like insider information, I feel like this is just like film critics, etc. have talked about this, that he's kind of more of like a producer now than a director in a lot of ways, which totally makes sense. I mean, I would age. assume he's got someone who doesn't have old person knees doing all of the like second unit direction on all these yeah. horse battles, because this whole movie takes place in basically winter. There is mainly one color in this film and it's gray slush. Yeah. So. <laughs> um, but that he's incredibly good at hiring people who are good at their jobs and people like actors continue to work with him repeatedly clearly love working with him so i think he must just run a really efficient production famously when he was doing all the money in the world a few years ago and the kevin spacey stuff happened he was like i'm just gonna reshoot like a quarter of this movie in like two weeks like (laughs) i mean that's not normal but specifically this kind of movie this sort of medieval historical epic he does movies like this, not necessarily medieval, though he has done several of those. I don't think I've ever seen any of these other films that he's done, but like they are quite famous. You've not seen Gladiator? I've never seen Gladiator, which I Okay, well I've seen these films, so I can I can confirm yeah. that this is very much in his uh, his style. <laughs> yeah. I mean there were like the duel at the end, which we'll obviously get to later. I've never seen Gladiator and I still was like, this is a fight in like the middle of an arena with everyone screaming at them like this feels like a gladiator type situation. He also did a version of Robin Hood several years ago that was set at this Not period. Good. Yeah, Not good. it was poorly received. And then Kingdom of Heaven, which is about the Crusades, which is like I've never seen this. Film critics love to talk about how the director's cut of this movie is a masterpiece and the one that was in theaters is not good. Well, I saw the bad one. I cannot yeah. comment on whatever alleged director's cut may exist. <laughs> yeah. I will say this is definitely an interesting one to be recording the week after our Green Knight podcast, because we talked a lot about kind of medieval cinema in that. And also a lot about kind of how everything is so like gritty and dark and like visually dark specifically. And obviously the Green Knight is like a far more experimental movie, but after watching this like a week later, I was like, okay, right. What I was actually talking about is like an entire subgenre that's like shaped by Ridley Scott because he's not a filmmaker who necessarily has like a really distinctive aesthetic that you really consider in the same way as, you know, Wes Anderson or something. But he is one of the biggest blockbuster filmmakers in America. And he really kind of changed the game with stuff like Gladiator. Lots of movies are trying to rip off Gladiator. And uh, and he's back here with like absolutely standard fare. There are two colors in this film. Uh, they are gray and yellow candlelight. There's about I would say about 
10 to 20% yellow candlelight, everything else is gray. As we all know, colors were not invented uh, until the Renaissance. Unless it's a serious <laughs> drama, in which case colors were not invented until about 1950. So, <laughs> Well, and what's so funny is that like Blade Runner and Thelma and Louise and even Alien, although obviously a lot of that movie takes place in the dark and there's a lot of like black stuff in it, are, are not like this. And no. he clearly at some point was just like, you know what? Whatever. <laughs> but also, they're not this. historical. Like, his his historical dramas are like, look, you need to understand here that this was a time when men were men, women were fake women, <laughs> and it rained all the time. <laughs> Unless it's Gladiator, in which case it's sort of the washed out sort of Mediterranean lighting they like to use. Yeah, yeah I too was thinking about The Green Knight a lot. I also just like ordered a bunch of like medieval literature books because I'm just fully, I'm embracing the, the kick that we've inadvertently <laughs> got on. And it was really interesting to watch this right after that. As you say, it's completely doing a different thing. But certain things about The Green Knight that kind of aggravated me. Like, this movie is also like clearly a historical in many ways. And I was just like, whatever. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it really is irrelevant. Like, it, it's fine. Because it's kind of doing a performance of historical fiction in a way. Yeah. I mean, the way I was looking at this is he is taking the most conventional Hollywood version of this type of setting and genre, and it's extremely accessible. The audience really is not going to be tripped up by anything. And you kind of need that almost like blank backdrop in order to tell what is like a very narratively sophisticated story for like a film of this type. Yeah. And I think it's engaging with history in an interesting way. It's just not concerned with the details which again is fine it's not really pretending so i don't like unless you're just completely gormlessly like i believe everything i see on the screen like you should hopefully be able to watch this and be like i'm assuming that not all of this is true but that leads us into the book by eric jager which i now really want to read like the main thing i got from this movie honestly was like that i want to know more about this actual historical event which I like I don't remember this book coming out or reading about it, but it was notable at the time. Um, and this is a famous story that has been discussed a lot over the centuries since 1386, which is when this duel took place. I was reading an article by Alyssa Wilkinson at Box. She didn't like the movie very much, but one of the things that she pointed out was that this story has been just like relitigated over and over again constantly with men throughout history being like, well, she obviously must have been lying, which is difficult. But basically, it was the last judicial trial by combat duel in France. And in the movie, which I assume is correct, like even at the time, they were like, this is not really how we do things anymore. Like, this is weird. But the Matt Damon character kind of insists. And Eric Jager, who wrote the book, actually said that the film is probably around 75% historically accurate, which I think is pretty impressive, frankly. Obviously, when you're adapting something like this, like there is, it does sound like there's quite a bit of historical documentation about it because it was a huge story at the time in France. But because it was so long ago, all the personal conversations and stuff they're having, like, of course, they're making that up. So it's kind of an ideal thing to adapt because on the one hand, you have historical information about this remarkable situation. On the other hand, it's like, there's just not enough information to really know a lot of what was going on. So they can kind of just, you know, fudge their way through 
a lot of it. And, like, no one's going to care if it's inaccurate because it took place in 1386. So, like, that's Yeah, the idea that we have literally any record of anything that happened then is wild. (laughs) Yeah. And Affleck himself has basically said that, like, which is true for all adaptations of real things, that, like, they were more interested in telling a story about the quote I have here is illuminating the fact that the vestiges of the sexism and misogyny of the patriarchy we live in now, we live with now come from a place that was Western civilization's codified value system, which all seems good. Then like telling exactly what happened in this instance. And it seems like the biggest thing that they change again, without having read the book myself is that the rape as this woman described it at the time was, like, much more brutal than it is depicted in the film. It's awful in the movie, but it sounds... Like, I'm not going to go into details because we don't need to do that, but, like, it sounds like it was really horrific. And that the servant of the Adam Driver character, who is a character in the movie, also participated, which then gets into other complicated issues, right? If, like, there's a witness and, like... Because the character is basically believes he didn't do anything wrong. And if there's another guy in there, that kind of makes that question a little yeah. bit trickier. I mean, the, right? way, the way the film frames it, for those who've not seen it, is it's like it's like a real he said, she said narrative. It's split into three thirds where the first part is Jean de Carouge, which is Matt Damon's character. And then that kind of gives you all of his backstory and really lets you know him as a character. And he's this sort of blustery, aggro warrior guy who's kind of stupid, is not good at politics, is very sort of insecure in a very macho way, and is like obsessed with land disputes with his former friend, now kind of rival and enemy, played by Adam Driver, uh, Jacques Legree. And you kind of see that he has this pre-existing dispute with this man. And then... Matt Damon's wife basically says this man raped me and that kind of is like the final straw in a pre-existing dispute between those two men so that kind of like adds this extra edge to the rape accusation which like maybe wouldn't have felt like such a big deal to him if he didn't already hate the guy and basically see his wife as property that this guy is damaged slash stolen and then the second third is you see the story from Adam Driver's perspective Jacques Legree and then finally the third third is you see Jodie Comer, Marguerite, retell the story from her perspective. So you see the rape from Adam Driver and Jodie Comer's perspectives. Yeah, and the so I found the first third, which is the Matt Damon third, I th- thought it was just like straightforwardly bad. Um, <laughs> based on the way they've said it, the movie, you do need to hear from all three of these characters. But so you saw this movie before I did and you were, were like, oh, actually, this movie's good. And other critics also liked it. And so I went in, not with like sky high expectations, but I was certainly looking forward to it more than I might have been before those responses came in. And the first third, I was just like, this is interminable. This is not enjoyable. (laughs) Like, oh, no. And it's kind of the most straightforward portion of the movie. Like, yeah. I mean, the issue with the Matt Damon character, right, is that like, he just seems like sort of the the watered down version of, you know, the protagonist you often get in like a gritty historical drama, which is kind of the point. And then he becomes like this funny, mockable figure when you see him from the other people's perspectives. But because they have to use him as the foundation in the first third, like he's not very dynamic or interesting in that section, which does 
feel longer because like you have the whole kind of elongated backstory for him. And then once you get like more Adam Driver, you're like, oh, okay, right. Well, first of all, clearly Adam Driver's character is like much smarter. And then when you see the way that other people are viewing Matt Damon, you're like, this guy is like, he is laughable, you know? Yeah. And I think Matt Damon is a great actor. I don't think, I don't think he's terrible in this movie, but he's definitely giving the weakest performance. I think just because the script like doesn't give him as much interesting stuff to do, especially in that first third. And one of the things I found a little bit frustrating about the movie as a whole, and I think this goes back to it just being like a big Hollywood film, is that it has this Rashomon structure where you're seeing things, seeing the same events from different people's points of view. And it doesn't, they don't vary that much. Like you're kind of getting the same thing repeatedly. And you also kind of know how it's going to end because clearly the woman has to be vindicated because otherwise, like what the fuck would this movie even be? And obviously you, I didn't want to be watching a movie that was like, well, maybe she was lying because that would not be enjoyable. But It felt like they were kind of like, well, we're going to have a kind of experimental structure, but not go too far with it, which I found a little bit frustrating. But I also was like, well, but this is kind of the trade off of just like having a big mainstream Hollywood film of this type is that it's not going to be that weird. But I do think the bigger problem was just that that first third with Damon, I just found really boring. And what I was thinking about specifically was like, so I've been sending off query letters for this novel that I've written. And you like when you're researching about that process, they, you spend so much time being like the first 10 pages, which is what you normally send out, have to be really strong to like hook agents and theoretically future readers in a bookshop. And I was watching this movie and I was like, so I'm in a movie theater watching this and I'm obviously going to watch the whole thing. But like so many people watch movies at home now. And if you were watching this movie at home, you got like 10 minutes in. So many people would turn it off. And I just couldn't stop thinking about that, which is really unfortunate because then the second two thirds of the movie are great. Like the first section is by far the most like battle heavy. Like obviously, you know, the film is going to end in a duel. (laughs) Uh, But like Matt Damon's section is really heavy on the medieval battles. So if you're like the kind of person who likes that sort of movie, you're going to be like, great, I'm going to tune in for this two and a half hour long medieval battle movie. And then you're going to be annoyed when it starts being like a debate about consent for the entire second two thirds. And then if you're someone who likes that part, it's like the first third is obviously going to be, you know, a lot of Matt Damon with his... His haircut, the haircuts in this are legendary. Um, <laughs> just being really muddy and disgusting and, you know, stomping around with his mullet. Well, I think because they do feel compelled to give more backstory for him, which I don't actually think is necessary. There's a lot of that first section before you get into the sexual assault conversation. And I was co- like, when are we going to get to that? Because that's why I'm interested in this movie. And even the driver section like there is a fair amount before you get to the rape scene but it's all to do with these gender dynamics and everything that's going on yeah and his kind of relationships because with the matt damon section like it's really necessary to know all the land dispute stuff and to kind of know the way he perceives himself as this sort of like warrior type but we don't need to see that much of him hacking people to bits with a sword you know no and i think one of the most interesting things about the movie to me, he was the character by the end of the movie who I felt most kind of repulsed by. And so I think you do need a first section where he comes across better than he does at the end of the movie. But I just wanted it to be executed better because I just was not 
engaged by that. Whereas then you get to the driver section, which I thought was the strongest third of the movie. And I yeah, was I like, I love this. <laughs> like, this it's also great. the section that has the highest proportion of Ben Affleck. Oh, yeah. Which helps <laughs> a lot. Because, like, when I was reviewing this, like, literally in the first paragraph of my review, I was like, I cannot even start to discuss the content of this movie until I discuss the extreme diciness of the creative setup. Because, like, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck are these kind of intriguing figures. Like, we've definitely discussed Matt Damon a bit more as an actor on this podcast than Ben Affleck, I think, because he so rarely does films that we are, like, voluntarily watching. <laughs> but, like, obviously on some level, like, they have they wrote this really iconic movie, which I've not seen, so I can't comment on. They're clearly, like, in some capacity, really smart people. They're also, like, Ben Affleck is this legendary celebrity doofus whose insecurities often seem very transparent in his kind of persona and work. And then Matt Damon is this person who everyone really thought highly of until about five years ago when it became rapidly quite clear that he's an asshole. And in the kind of the the topic of like feminism and women and rape culture and the Me Too movement, neither of these men are like (laughs) particularly well placed in the public conversation. Like Matt Damon, every time he gives a press statement, like it will be sort of, oh, I'm like this liberal guy. And then he'll just say something that makes it really obvious that he's like discriminated against people really obviously in the workplace, you know? So like did some interview like in the kind of early months of the Me Too movement where it was like he just seemed clueless. But then Ben Affleck is in a much worse position because obviously his brother, Casey Affleck, widely accused of workplace sexual misconduct. And obviously, you know, Ben has kind of supported him through that and he's continuing to have a very thriving career. And... Also, Ben Affleck has been, like, accused of groping two women. He definitely, like, owned up to one of those, like, it was on camera. Um, and, you know, his his kind of personality is, like, I'm just, like, a, a bro. That's his, you know, his celebrity persona is, like, I'm a bro. But also, you kind of read interview quotes with them about this movie, and it's, like, <laughs> clearly, like, they have a lot of smart thoughts about this, and the resulting script is very intelligent. And also, like, the characters they're playing seem so self-aware, and... It almost feels like Ben Affleck and Matt Damon's kind of acting careers, often they choose characters that are kind of playing off their star power in a more effective way than the stuff they actually say in interviews, which is a hellscape nightmare. (laughs) I mean, the Affleck stuff, I find him a really fascinating celebrity as do, I think, many people. There was some article recently about how he's kind of been cursed by the fact that his like personal slash paparazzi life is way more compelling than anything he ever does in movies, which which is true. I mean, his role in Gone Girl is so legendary. Like when he brought out his Gone Girl smirk in this movie, I was like, the smirk's here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's his best performance for sure. He also is like very, been very public about like he was a serious alcoholic. Yeah. I mean, he's had major personal issues. Yeah, and the groping stuff was a long time ago. So I just have to hope that, like, he has, you know, figured his shit out. But for me, the two of them are occupy this bizarre space because I grew up outside of Boston. And at that time, they were, like, the gods of that area, right? And, like, I have seen Google Hunting a thousand times. I love that movie. I think it's amazing. They're both great in it. The screenplay is great. Like, it's just a wonderful film. And then they've become these... <laughs> Just embarrassing people. I mean, so I don't very think Matt Damon should do interviews. Like, I don't understand. Like, the and stuff he comes out with is just. Ugh. I think 
I, some of it is definitely like, oh, this is bad. And some of it's just like foot in mouth disease where like, I don't yeah. actually think he's trying in any way to be an asshole. And it's just like, you're, you're just saying things that you should not say, like, just stop. But the quotes about this movie were all very thoughtful and interesting that I read. And I was just like, you know what? I just don't, I, who, who can understand what's happening here anymore? <laughs> and the fact that they hired Nicole Holof Center in a way is sort of like, oh, we got to get a woman to like help with a woman. But also I think that was probably smart that they did that. And she's a really great writer. And like, it, you know what? Just like to have someone involved in this who has more perspective on that was probably helpful. Yeah, so you said that she focused on the Jodie Comer section because I kind of yes. wasn't clear on how the screenwriting trajectory worked for this. Yeah, so she gave an interview to Vanity Fair where she talks about this. I mean, they've talked about it through in multiple interviews. They've all been doing interviews together, but there was a good interview she did in Vanity Fair where they were all reading the whole thing and like they would ask her questions about their parts and she asked questions about her parts and it wasn't like they were just like just write these 30 pages and like don't speak to us about the rest of it but her her job was to write the Jodie Comer section she has a kind of funny quote in that Vanity Fair interview where she was just like I just really tried to think about like how horrible it would be to like live at this time I was like yep I concur (laughs) yeah seems terrible (laughs) being a wife seems like a nightmare Yep. Um, yeah, so she definitely was, was sort of in charge of that stuff. And then they were more in charge of the first two thirds. I will say on a less sophisticated note, this is something I like messaged you about as soon as I came out of the theater, but like the volume of expository dialogue in this movie is quite comical. <laughs> Especially in like the first half, they're just like, people will like walk up to each other and be like, as you know, sir, the garrison is my brother's. And it's like, oh, Jesus Christ. Like, there's lots of highly unnatural exposition in this. Yeah. To a degree that I do not believe was necessary. No, it's it's too much. Um, like, And it's good, especially in that first third. I was just like, what will this end? Like, this is not enjoyable to me. The presence of Adam Driver helps most movies. Uh, he's very good at acting. I think... In a way, the most provocative thing about the movie to me was the way they handled that character. Um, the fact that they sort of changed the historical record in terms of the rape situation makes sense in terms of what they were trying to achieve there, I think, because it's not that you walk away from the movie being sympathetic to him at all, obviously, or thinking that like he's a great guy, but part of it is the performance and part of it is the writing. Like, he obviously does this monstrous thing and is not thinking about this woman as like a whole person because then he would not behave in this way. But he's not characterized as like a cartoonish monster at all. He kind of is just like a dude. And I think what the movie is really trying to get at is how men both in this historical moment, but then also obviously just like forever and still now just kind of are socialized to think like, well, this is just how I can behave. And so it's totally fine. I mean, this is like a slight spoiler, but like for me, one of the best parts in the movie is after kind of he's had this accusation has gone public, like Margarita's decided to really spread this intentionally to try and get him to face legal repercussions. Adam Driver immediately goes to Ben Affleck's character, Count Pierre, who is one of his closest friends and his his immediate superior and also is, you know, the legal authority this is going to go to. And he kind of says to Pierre, 
well, you know, we had this encounter, but she made all of the customary protestations. But of course, we know that like in the world of like, you know, medieval consent, women can't admit that they want to commit adultery or have sex out of wedlock. So of course, they are going to make the customary protestations. And this is like backed up by earlier on, like kind of the part of the relationship between Pierre and Jacques Legree, Adam Driver's character, is that like they're both horn dogs, especially Ben Affleck. Um, where, you know, they just have all these orgies with all these girls and they have these parties and like there's a party where you see them playing like a consent game where Adam Driver is chasing this girl around and she's into it and it's all really giggly and she like, he like picks her up and that, that sort of thing. And, you know, I think like, you know, they're clearly meant to be sex workers. Like you also, you know, is sleeping with women of the gentry and stuff. Like he has a reputation. He doesn't have the reputation of like a rapist or a harasser. He has the reputation of being like a Lothario. He's kind of sort of a Casanova type. And when you see the rape scene from his perspective, it's very ambiguous. And she seems kind of flirty. And, you know, he chases her. But the implication is that it's like a consensual chase of some kind. Yeah. And the fact that he's like enormous really plays into this. Because like there is no way to fight Adam Driver. No. And she is... Definitely not enormous. So that you're like, what are you going to do? But you also see, so there's a scene where they're talking at this, you know, like christening gathering or something. And he finds out that she reads. And this is like really exciting to him because he was trained to go into the clergy and then wound up being a squire. But he's can read Latin, which is unusual. And so can she, which is also unusual. Um, Her husband, Matt Damon, is illiterate. And so they have this kind of, from his perspective, flirtatious conversation about various medieval literary texts. And it totally makes sense that, like, a woman who has some kind of substance is going to be, like, really exciting to this guy because women were so rarely allowed yeah. to like, and he's do decided anything. he's in love with her. Right. He's just like, I love her. No woman has ever been so amazing. And he like, he immediately gets into this sort of like romantic courtly love chivalric obsession. That's just how he interprets the concept of being in love, even though they literally don't have a relationship. And it completely makes sense in the context of him. You know, his only experience with women is literally fucking them. And his only experience of romance is reading like these fucking romance novels that were written in the 14th century and are all complete nonsense. Right. And obviously none of that excuses raping someone, but it is kind of just this reflection of how empty these like male-female relationships are, right? When you can't just have a normal conversation with someone. And again, women are put in this position where you're mostly not educated. Like the things you're allowed to do are really limited. She does, we see in her section, like she's doing a lot of the maintaining of their estate and is better at it than Matt Damon, who is Yeah, but it's like, crucially, that can only happen like when he's out of town. (laughs) Right, yes. And so it's just this like, again, totally impoverished kind of interaction. And so then for this man who clearly is really smart, the idea of like a smart lady, his brain is just like, oh my God. Like, this is so thrilling. And instead of proceeding in a normal way, which in this case would be, like, doing nothing because she's married to someone else, he's like, well, obviously I have to just, like, show up at her house and immediately have sex with her. Yeah. With, like, no foreplay and absolutely no attention paid whatsoever to the idea of, like, her enjoying it. 
because he's not thinking about that in any of the other sexual encounters he's having, right? So, again, I don't think the movie's trying to suggest, nor am I trying to suggest, that this guy is just, like, misunderstood or sad or whatever, but I think the movie does a really good job of showing that it's not, like, this one specific evil man. Yeah, I mean, it's the classic, like, product of society, right? Because, like, in the vast majority of rape movies, the perpetrator is this kind of ogre, you know? Yeah. And, like, the reason why this story, you know, it's good to see in sort of a mainstream, accessible blockbuster context is, like, he's not. And also there's this whole element that we see in Marguerite's section where, like, the local girls think he's hot. Like, he's the hot guy. And the fact that he's played by Adam Driver, I think, plays into this a lot, right? Because we all love Adam Driver. He is hot. (laughs) Like, obviously he's played bad guys before, including in Star Wars, but, like, everyone... Loves that character. So <laughs> there's a natural kind of like, I mean, I, this is how I can only speak for myself. Like I love watching Adam Driver and stuff. Like there's a natural desire to like find him sympathetic. I think again, I can only speak for myself, but like, he's just a sympathetic screen presence. He's really magnetic and he's in the position of being like the bad guy in the movie, which I think is really interesting. Um, that's obviously partly why they cast him in star Wars, but this is doing something more sophisticated, right. And forcing you to kind of think, about what's going on in that way. Yeah. I love the casting in this. Like, obviously it's not a situation where like a director has gone out and cast people because two of the lead actors are the writers of the film. But it's like the way that they're kind of different star powers play into it is so interesting because you've obviously got kind of Matt Damon is playing this like, the first section is just like pure drudgery and he has done many a dull action movie. But like in the later sections, you he does do quite a lot of character roles that are more comedic and sort of self-aware and also some that are sort of like now poking a bit of fun at his sort of you know middle-aged white guyness and like his character is kind of playing into that and like you said Adam Driver is the most sophisticated character and performance because you know he specializes in morally complex characters who are kind of compelling and have a lot of emotional depth and that's kind of what his character is And then Jodie Comer is like by far the least famous actor in the cast. You know, it's like people know her from Killing Eve and like she's been in various big movies now, but she's not yet the sort of leading woman status and she doesn't look particularly distinctive. And in like the first two sections, her role is relatively minimal. And because of the way they've styled her, it's just like she's this like really just beautiful woman with like this kind of fake blonde hair, like fake historical hair. And then once you get to, like, the third section, like, obviously Jodie Comer is a great actress and, like, the assault scene is great because you kind of see the way that she is kind of existing in Adam Driver's memory as this sort of more flirtatious figure and then you see reality. But, like, once they get into her third, she does actually get a chance to play this character as a character. And I think it was a real misfire to not change her styling in this final third and I don't think it is something that Ridley Scott would ever consider because like he's not like Hollywood's most sexist filmmaker but he does like to make movies where just like the men can look like whatever and then the women are conventionally attractive which is like the most straightforward thing to see in every historical drama and apart from Ben Affleck's character who is like this very ostentatious aristocrat who's wearing these gold robes all the men are sort of wearing these gritty like mud spattered black leather doublets and whatever And then the women just have like completely flawless skin and teeth and hair and are just like wearing these amazing outfits. Like, you know, the costumes obviously have like, you know, they're not like 
quote unquote historically accurate. It's completely standard for this kind of film. But like, I think if they'd had Jodie Comer look like the traditional kind of Hollywood medieval women ingenue in the first two thirds, and then in like the second third, mess her up, like have her wearing like clothes that look plausibly practical and like put her hair in like a more of a tangle and like, you know because it's like she literally is like blatantly wearing a layer of foundation through the whole thing and it's just like it's really ridiculous looking especially in the context of her being married to Matt Damon who is like disgusting looking throughout <laughs> the hair was the thing that really tripped me up I really enjoyed the costumes I don't know anything about clothing from that era so I mean I was they just look like- good it's like what we were discussing with the Green Knight. It's like it's all black and grey. It's so yeah. monochrome and it's like medieval fashion. I mean, you can't even afford black dye. Like no one is going to be wearing black. They're all yeah. going to be wearing like one green trouser and one red trouser because it's the 14th century. But obviously Ridley Scott is not going to do that. <laughs> yeah. But her hair, I was just laughing to myself the whole time. Like <laughs> waist length ringlets. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that you definitely seems for five plausible. minutes in that continual sleet, because it's like winter for most of this film, you go out and it's like, that is tangled in five seconds, because I have that natural hair texture, it's only shoulder length, and I go out for five minutes and that shit's tangled. <laughs> <laughs> braids. Braids on your head. I mean, she does have those too, but when she has those, I'm like, well, those are too neat too. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, that would have been a great idea in terms of changing the styling that they obviously did not take up, not surprisingly. Obviously, like, body hair on women in these types <laughs> yeah. of movies is something I mean, that we've talked about many times. Absurd. It will never happen. I do think we should talk more about Ben Affleck, because he's the best thing about the movie. Yeah, his performance in this is absolutely stunning. Because, like, I think one of the things about Ben Affleck, right, is, like, we all know he is the complete opposite of a historical film actor like he does not belong in history there was some viral tumblr post from like a few years ago where it's like this man was born knowing what email is like (laughs) you cannot have him in a historical (laughs) setting and it's completely true here and it's but it really functions well because the character he's playing he's playing it like completely modern he is wearing you know medieval garb but the scenes he has he behaves like a middle-aged frat bro there's a scene where he is like basically sneaker shopping with Adam Driver. Like he's trying on his medieval sneakers. They're having these like boozy, horny parties with these women who are also like clearly modern because like they've they've got them out of like the same central casting as the Game of Thrones naked girls. And kind of like that interview you were reading out from earlier, the relationship he has with Adam Driver is like so obviously allegorical for the kind of modern boys club situations. And it makes sense for him to be this just frivolous idiot because he is at the top of the food chain, not out of merit, you know? And he gets to give this really ostentatious, over-the-top, very funny performance that is also just really depressing about the state of the world because he truly doesn't give a shit and is a misogynist, but like not even in a malevolent way. He just doesn't care. I would say I don't think he's actually playing an idiot. I think he's playing someone who knows exactly what's going on and is just like, lol nothing matters (laughs) yeah i mean yeah i mean he's not like yeah the the stupid character is definitely man damon but yes he's someone who's decided to just like be a wastrel basically i pulled a quote from bilga abiri's review of this movie in vulture which is a great read um we'll obviously link to this and everything else we've referenced and he writes this performance is not a joke 
Affleck's dismissiveness underlines the empty, corrupt gestures that lie at the heart of the rules, rituals, and traditions to which Damon's and Driver's characters and societies in general have wedded themselves. It also reveals how the casual words and actions of the powerful lead to life-destroying consequences for those beneath them. Affleck isn't just showing off here. His imperious performance is a sly messenger for the film's moral vision, both hilarious and choke-on-your-laughs tragic. Which I think is, like, totally... Yeah. Correct. Because when you get to the point where you're in Jodie Comer's section and it's like after she's trying to get this rape accusation into the courts, it's really upsetting. Like it's really stressful and unpleasant to see kind of the walls that she's coming up against and like the interaction she has with her husband where it just, it becomes like so much more clear that he is just like an awful person who doesn't give a shit about her. Because like after she tells him about the rape, he immediately like basically is like not willing to believe her and then his immediate reaction after that is like he wants to have sex with her because he needs to like reclaim his property he's just like just completely awful to her and then like continues to doubt her after this has gone to court and they have this like horrible court case and the kind of juxtaposition between that and Ben Affleck's just like horny frivolity and the way he reacts when Adam Driver like brings the accusation to him is just like so depressing (laughs) yeah and i mean i've definitely seen some critics sort of be turned off by this performance because they feel like it's not taking the subject matter seriously but i think bilga's point which is like it's kind of the point of the film that like these kinds of people are in positions of power and they kind of know right? That they can do whatever they want. The performance is really, really funny, but there is a slight kind of like emptiness inside of it that has some pathos, which I think is speaking to this kind of like, he just kind of knows this is all meaningless, right? Yeah. And also the fact that he is genuinely attached to Adam Driver is really interesting because when it gets to the point of the duel, It's kind of the first point in the entire film where Ben Affleck's character really seems to care about anything. He is actually stressed over the outcome of the duel. He does not want to see his friend die. And he like openly doesn't give a shit about anyone else in his life. He's got all these hangers on and like his wife and stuff. And, you know, Adam Driver is like the most important relationship in his life. Partly like this guy has been running his accounts for him and stuff. But, you know, he's not having conversations with anyone else. And he hasn't, he clearly hasn't like experienced consequences for anything ever. And here he is basically experiencing consequences secondhand because Adam Driver is getting done in for something which like neither of them ever considered would be a problem. Yeah. And you get various scenes where he's the judicial authority in this you know district or whatever the area is called. And he's like cousins or buddies or whatever with the king. So like, he can do whatever the fuck he wants and it literally doesn't matter. And this is the first time there have ever been any consequences, but like he knows that he's built into this system. Right. And like literally by blood. And so it just kind of like whatever versus the Marguerite character. Who's like desperately trying to work the judicial system to get some kind of fair treatment. And she doesn't have that advantage. And it's obviously completely different. Also, before we get to discussing the end of the movie in a little more detail, because I have more to say about Damon. I just was watching this and I kept thinking, like, Ben Affleck has done so many stupid, dumb, 
dramatic performances over the course of his career. And, like, this is just what he should be doing. He should just be doing comedy. Like, why has he forced us to deal with, like, fucking Batman? I, it's so misguided, you know? He's got, he's a leading man. <laughs> I mean, obviously, something like Gone Girl, he's fantastic in that movie. And I remember when he took the Batman role after literally winning the Oscar for Argo, which is also bad, we were all just kind of like, this man's ego cannot be stopped. Like the desperation to be seen as like a big movie star, right? Which has happened multiple times in his career. And it's, it's never really worked for him. Like he's never really totally succeeded in those roles. I mean, financially, not to say artistically, which also hasn't worked. But like this, he's in Shakespeare in Love, also playing like a ridiculous sort of yeah. <laughs> anachronistic historical fop. We also have not mentioned how terrible the accents are in this movie, which... I was thinking also of his bad accident in Shakespeare in Love. Hilarious. Pure chaos. They're barely trying. Um, His is probably the best. They are literally doing American accents. Like Ben Affleck and Matt Damon have done it. Because I was Googling this afterwards. I was like, because I fully respect and indeed prefer for historical films, unless they're all set in like literally England. Like you don't need to put on an English accent. So it's like, Ben Affleck and Matt Damon are not precisely speaking in their normal accents, but it's like mid-Atlantic American. But then Harriet Walter, who's playing the mother-in-law, is French. And I'm like, why is she French? They're all French. <laughs> it's it's just out of control. But like these two performances, and then also he's got he plays like a comedy supporting role in Good Will Hunting. And they're all kind of of a piece to me. And I think aside from Gone Girl, that's those are the best three things he's ever done. And yeah. it's just so obvious that this is what you should be doing. He is still Batman. I know. Oh my god. Like literally it's... he has <gasps> at least one more Batman to go because he's in The Flash as Batman, even though fucking Robert Pattinson is also Batman. <laughs> just when will it end? But yeah. Why don't we talk about how the movie ends? Yeah. There's a duel. What can I say? <laughs> it's the last There's a one. duel. It's very intense. Ridley Scott knows what he's about. It's, you know, there's a lot of just like people slamming into each other in armor. I, I mean, it, it did definitely make me think of A Knight's Tale, which is the, obviously the only film ever about lances. You know, it is kind of cool that like when you when you hear the phrase duel, you do assume that it's going to be with, you know, rapiers, but they are fully kind of going at each other with lances in a very phallic fashion on their horses. And only once they fall off their horses do they start slamming into each other with their big old blades. Very violent. <laughs> yeah, there was some quote in one of the articles I read where they were like, we had to change the duel because the historical duel, which is very well documented for reasons we've already discussed, it was like so unbelievably boring. <laughs> like, so I guess Matt Damon... The character he's playing, who he, I mean, he does kill Adam Driver, needless to say. He must have done that more efficiently in in history, but they drag it out a bit for the movie. I mean, normal fights, like, they don't last very long. Like, if you've ever seen no. someone be in a fight, it's like it's 30 seconds. I mean, before you go into the rest of this also, one of my key takeaways from this film is how funny it is that they just do not acknowledge the height difference between Matt Damon and uh, Adam Driver. Adam Driver is like in real life 6'2 or 6'3, but he like looks bigger. He is one of the biggest looking men in Hollywood. He's enormous. And Matt Damon is 
allegedly five foot ten, but is definitely shorter than that. He is like when he was like younger, the way he was shot was because of his proportions. Like he you would never know that he was short. But like now, because like, you know, he's middle-aged and he's spread a little and like he's not wearing like the outfits he's wearing in this are like loads of layers of armor. He looks really like stocky and small. And there are no scenes in the entire film where these men are standing next to each other. And I don't know if this was like because the actors are self-conscious about it or because they don't want to like bring that into the narrative because it maybe accentuates the kind of masculine neuroses of Matt Damon's character. But like, there's so many scenes where it's like Adam Driver's sitting down and Matt Damon's standing up, you know? (laughs) They do at one point clasp hands standing across from each other. And they are mysteriously almost the same height. And it's like, those are not. (laughs) Yeah. I kept thinking when they're fighting at the end, like, this is really the power of cinema and our our powers to delude ourselves, suspend... Because, like, we know that Adam Driver can disbelief. pick this man up and snap him in half. Right, like, there is no fucking way that he would lose that fight. But somehow he does. <laughs> because of God, like... the power of God. God yeah, decided. Which we haven't talked about um and there's not too much to say about it but they did say in an interview and was something i was thinking about in the movie like that's the historical thing they really left out of the film is that like these people genuinely believed that like god would determine how this played out like everyone at this time was incredibly religious and that is very glossed over in the movie because it seems a bit silly to us now but you know historically obviously jean de carouge did kill Jacques Lurie. And what I think is really successful about that last third that you see from her perspective, I mean, I think it's it's all well done, but Matt Damon just, and you've already described some of this, but like, he just seems like such a fucking asshole. <laughs> really awful. And it becomes so clear that this is about his ego and not about her desire to like have justice for this. Yeah. And she finds out after they've already like launched into this duel process, which was not her idea, that if he loses, she gets burned at the stake because that will mean that God has decided against them, right? And she's like, well, you did not tell me that this would be the case. So like, um, and the just intensity with which he clearly is doing this for his own ego and not because this horrible thing happened to her. And then once he wins, they're like parading through the streets and like people are congratulating him and he's clearly just like high on his own supply. And she's just kind of like, yeah, this whole thing. Yeah, and it's also like, she is going to be, this is going to be her only claim to fame for the next 800 years. Right. And that was what was most sort of chilling to me about the movie. Though they do say in like title cards, at the end that he went off to the crusades shortly after and then promptly died which was like great (laughs) yeah i mean it's like one of those things where you're kind of astonished he survived that long because it's like when you hear about people who were repeatedly going on military campaigns in the 14th century it's like why aren't you all dead of sepsis (laughs) i know i mean he must in real life have genuinely been like a very intimidating yeah military man right but so much attention has been paid to the Adam Driver and Ben Affleck characters. And in a way, to me, the Damon character felt like the worst one because he thinks he's a good person. I mean, they all think they're good people, but like, he really thinks he's a great guy. He is the person who is imprisoning and controlling this woman, you know, because it's like her her trauma is the rape, but like 
the experience of her life is completely shaped by the fact that she is sold off to this random man she's never met before. And then he is only really interested in the land he gets and he wants a child by her, but you know, they're not having a child together for years and years. She can't get pregnant implicitly because he is impotent or not impotent, but like infertile. And then after the rape, she like immediately gets pregnant. So it's probably Adam Driver's kid. And then in the lead up to her potentially getting burned at the stake, she's just had a baby. She's pregnant for like this whole court case. It's a nightmare. (laughs) Total nightmare. And I think part of what works so well about that Affleck performance is that like, yeah, this guy's obviously slimy and gross, but he's kind of more honest about being a shitheel, right? Yeah. Which always feels more defensible to me in a small way than somebody like Damon in this movie, who is so totally convinced of his moral superiority and when you look at and how it's he's like behaving, he's both an like, asshole no. and he's like completely incompetent. I love a feudal <laughs> drama where it's just like none of these people are even remotely good at their jobs. Like Adam Driver is the only one of these men who's good at kind of running an estate, and he is uh, not peasant, but he's a lower-born guy who's climbed up because he's befriended this shit guy who likes to have him at orgies. <laughs> and he's basically running Ben Affleck's estate for him. Matt Damon is a complete flop and his wife is doing all of the useful kind of organization. Yeah, it seems like it was a bad time to be alive. <laughs> Especially if you and were it's a like, woman. Oh, it seems like maybe there's some similarities with the present day. <laughs> well, yeah, that was, I mean, the last thing I would say about the movie is that it's clearly intentionally like commenting on our era. Like there's a scene where Affleck tells Driver that, like, he literally says, deny, deny, deny about the rape accusation. And I was like, well, that seems pointed. Yeah, because Adam Driver's like, oh, well, there's so much complexity to this. Here's what I thought happened. And Ben Affleck's character is just like, the peasants don't understand nuance. Just say it didn't happen. (laughs) Yeah. But it also is, even though it's not, again, as we said, trying to, like, be totally accurate about all the historical details, like, it is engaging with the history in terms of like certain things being really different. And so it's kind of like weaving between both those things in a way that I thought was interesting. It's yeah. It's far more kind of thoughtful in that regard than Ridley Scott's other historical epics, which are not interested in that at all. They're just like, here's a story. Which like, that's fine. Um, But I appreciate Yeah. I appreciated that in this case. So I think we would both recommend this. If this is a subject matter you're, you know, open to it's quite long. But I'm definitely glad I saw it. Worth it for Affleck, honestly. Like, worth the price of admission for that performance. We hope you you had a nice medieval double bill with us after The Green Knight last week. And next week, we will be discussing all of our film festival movies. Yeah, I didn't get to see nearly as many as I had hoped to because I got conveniently extremely sick during the entire run of the festival. But the movies that I did see were mostly big titles. Like Titan, which won the Palme d'Or, and the new Macbeth. Oh my god, Titan. <laughs> yeah, we will have... I mean, I don't want to spoil that for anybody. We so cannot we'll discuss what happens in Titan, yes, <laughs> cr- crucially. But we need to talk about it, so... We can we'll, talk we'll about Macbeth. I think we're allowed to tell people what happens in the new, <laughs> you know, the Denzel <laughs> yes. Washington Macbeth. No spoilers, but it's got Macbeth in it. And then the, my favorite thing I saw... Well, the... Other two things I saw at the festival that I totally loved were The Souvenir Part 2. We talked about The Souvenir Part 1 a few years ago. 
the power of the dog as well. The first movie ever where Benedict Cumberbatch is good. I mean, only a slight exaggeration. He is playing an interesting role. <laughs> yeah, that was my favorite. The, the Sonia Part 2 and Power of the Dog I both loved, but um, I am a lunatic for Jane Campion, and this is her first movie since Bright Star in 2009, and it was so great. I think probably the most universally acclaimed movie of the year so far. I loved it. And the novelty of seeing Benedict Cumberbatch give a good performance. I was like, my God, <laughs> this is possible. And, but you've seen a ton of other stuff too. So we will have yeah. a lot. Yeah, we can about. we can talk about Kristen Stewart playing Princess Diana. Yeah, which I have not seen yet. And I am so pumped. So we'll have a combination of stuff that we've both seen. And then Gav can give dispatches on other movies. And then in weeks following, we will still be doing the north water um and then we also have dune coming thank you all for listening as always if you would like to support us on patreon we recently did a summer book episode over there and you can also sponsor an episode of your choice if you would like that is at patreon.com slash overinvested podcast gavia where can our listeners find you and your work online you can find me on YouTube at Behind the Seams, and you can find me on Twitter at Hello underscore Taylor. And you can find me on Twitter at Letterboxd at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at Overinvested Pod. Our Tumblr is Overinvested Podcast, and our website is OverinvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.